You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For November 1st, 2017, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nilder. Previously on this show, particularly in episode 10 with Lorenzo Kristoff and episode 39 with Jenny Reese, we've touched on grid power regulation and power engineering, but only at a surface level. In this episode, we're going to go deep into the subject, including voltage, current, real power, reactive power, apparent power, and frequency, as well as the causes of various kinds of instability on the grid and the various ways that we regulate power to maintain a stable grid. It's super wonky, and indeed, this whole subject is frankly a bit over my head, as I never really studied power engineering, and I probably wouldn't really be able to do the math anyway. But I decided that we had to tackle it because as we proceed into a future in which the grid is increasingly powered by renewables and we retire many of our conventional thermal generators, we will have to find new ways to meet some of the specific technical requirements of maintaining good grid power. Not just the need for dispatchable on-demand power, but the need for power with stable voltage and frequency that plays nicely with the world's largest machine, the power grid. We need to understand exactly what causes power grid blackouts, like the Great Northeast Blackout of 2003 in the U.S., and what we can do to prevent those occurrences. We'll also need to understand the true technical potential of wind and solar, and how, for example, new so-called virtual synchronous machines can turn a solar plant into a frequency regulation asset, and in fact, how many of our loads could provide grid regulation services if we designed them to do so. But as I said, this gets very technical, and this episode definitely merits its geek rating of 11. To help us understand these arcane mysteries, our guest today is Martin Vestjung, an engineer who works in the Flexible AC Transmission System Unit of ABB, a Swedish-Swiss power and automation supplier based in Zurich. He has a background working with power system studies related to voltage stability and control and power quality issues, and he appears on this show in a non-commercial, personal capacity and not as a representative of ABB. Then in the news segment, we'll look at a report that suggests the devastating fires in October in Northern California's wine country might have been caused by power lines for some of the same reasons we discussed in this interview, some new free educational materials on home heating as a coda to episode 53, another echo to episode 53 in the form of a tweet storm by Energy Transition Show alumnus McKay Miller about the tension between heating and vehicle electrification on the grid, and a new report on building EV charging infrastructure. But first, our conversation with Martin Vestume. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Martin, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you, Chris. Great to be here. 
So we're going to have a very geeky and technical discussion about electricity today. And so right off the bat, I want to remind listeners that to understand a discussion that's this technical, they'll probably want to check out the resources that we've put into the show notes. So I'm going to start this interview off as well with a little bit of a introduction, a little bit of a preamble to sort of explain why we're talking about this subject at all and why it's relevant to energy transition. So I guess I would frame the subject this way. As we get more variable renewable power on the grid. We'll need to find ways to maintain power quality, including things like voltage, so that the grid remains stable and performs the work that we want it to do. Conventional thermal power plants are basically big steam engines with a spinning mass inside, an electromagnetic synchronous generator. And because it's synchronous, meaning that it's spinning at a certain rate and with a certain timing, that big spinning mass does a lot of things for you in addition to simply providing electricity. Electricity power, or more technically for reasons we'll discuss in a minute, real power. For example, a synchronous generator also provides a certain amount of inertia in the system, which keeps the electricity flowing along nicely through the wires at a stable voltage and current, and supplies a mysterious thing known as reactive power, which I've carefully avoided talking about on this show because I don't understand it very well. <laughs> but we'll discuss that in a minute as well. But photovoltaic solar power does not have a big spinning mass. And so although it does provide real power, it doesn't do those other things that a thermal power plant can do. So high penetrations of PV can cause voltage variations on an electricity system, particularly when there's a lot of solar near the end of long and lightly loaded feeder lines in the distribution system. And that can affect power quality and the operation of voltage control devices. So as we get into a world where there's a large amount of solar PV on the grid, we'll need to call on other devices to supply reactive power, to stabilize the voltage, and to do other important jobs that maintain power quality. Now, I'm no electrical engineer. I don't understand this stuff nearly to the fraction that you have, although I've sort of played one on the podcast, especially in our conversations with Lorenzo Kristoff in episode 10 and Elab Extra number three, and with Jenny Reese in episode 39. But how am I doing so far? Is this a fair description of why this subject is relevant in energy transition? In a sense, yes, for sure. But you're touching on a lot of different issues in stability when it comes to replacing conventional synchronous generators with renewable, often delivering power by using different sort of inverters like PV, but also wind power. One thing I'd like to point out, though, is that you still have some voltage regulating capability with wind and PV systems. The inverters that they use, they still could provide a fair share of reactive power. And it's a... I would say it's really up to grid codes to decide to be set up or laid out smart enough to be able to have these systems supply reactive power. Although, of course, a very large generator with a very high capacity will, of course, be a very stable point in your grid compared to all these smaller resources. You can't really debate against that. But when you're in an energy transition, trying to move towards a more sustainable future, you'll have to be a bit adaptive, right? And I'd also like to point out that it's not just a matter of like what can supply reactive power and what can't. There's also the discussion on something referred to as system strength. It really comes down to what the short circuit power of that node or the point in system is. And what is short circuit power? It's essentially the power that you'd get out 
from a, any node or any point in your system had you put a short circuit there. This term sounds a bit abstract, but the reason it's relevant is because it relates directly to how sensitive your voltage will be. There's a linear relationship between this sensitivity and how easy you can move the voltage, this short circuit strength. All right, fair enough. Now, before we go any deeper down that hole, mm -hmm. I want to just, again, explain some basic concepts for folks that may not really understand the difference between like voltage and amperage and that kind of thing. Of course. So, electricity has two main characteristics, voltage and current. I think it's helpful to understand them by analogy to water coming out of a hose. People like to use hydronic analogies in electricity. So voltage is like the water pressure and current, which is measured in amperage or amps, is like the diameter of the hose. So multiply them together and you get a certain rate of water flow. Yeah, but multiply volts and amps. Oh, go ahead. I'd say even the current here analogy would even be the water flow in this sense. The water flow can be a certain amount, which would be your amperage. And then in the end, the wires or your pipe is only rated for a certain amount of current or water flow per square centimeter or inch, depending on which continent you live in. Right. Okay. So getting back to the first principles then here. So we multiply volts and amps, and that gives you a rate of electricity flow, which we typically measure in watts. So here in the US, where our electricity system runs at 110 volts, if you plug in something to a typical 20 amp household circuit, you can draw up to 2,200 watts, which is 110 times 20. And that's enough to power like a professional blow dryer, for example, or a microwave oven. And I think most people understand that much at some level. In Europe, where the electricity system runs at 220 volts, so twice the voltage, then you only need half the amps to provide the same amount of power. So 220 volts at 10 amps is the same as 110 volts at 20 amps. And this is important because the higher your voltage, the more power you can send down a thinner wire because you need amperage to overcome the resistance in a wire. So Europe can run thinner wires, which requires less copper to do the same job as in America because the system runs at a higher voltage. But at the grid scale, we have to understand more arcane concepts like frequency, which is the speed of the sine wave of alternating current, and again, this mysterious reactive power. Now, again, I'll admit, even after years of trying, I still struggle to understand reactive power. I've heard a lot of metaphors that try to explain it. And I think it basically comes down to this. Either you understand the math that explains reactive power or you don't. And I, I really don't. <laughs> but for what it's worth, I've heard reactive power described as the magnetism that energizes a power grid so that electricity or real power can flow through it. I've heard it explained as electricity being like a train going through a tunnel where the train is the real power and reactive power is what's holding the tunnel open. Technically, I think reactive power is often described as the delay between voltage and current, which is known as the phase angle. And that can be thought of as current that's arriving at the wrong time, like too late or too early or out of phase with the voltage. So although only real power actually does work, reactive power also has to be there to keep power flowing. So you put real power and reactive power together, and then you have what's known as apparent power. So how am I doing here? Is there a better way to understand real power, reactive power, and apparent power? I think you're doing pretty well, actually. There's a bunch of analogies. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't use the, uh, the beer analogy. Yeah, I didn't use that one because I didn't understand it, but run it by me again. <laughs> it's fairly simple, but that's why I don't really like it. But I know a lot of people are using it. The bare analogy is that the 
frothy, foamy part on the top of your beer, the beer head, I believe it's called. Yeah. That's reactive power. And then the actual beer is your real power. Together, they make up the parent power. Yeah, but I don't like that because if I scrape the head off the beer, I still have beer. <laughs> Whereas if I scrape the reactive power off the system, I don't get real power anymore. Oh, well... I mean, in that case, what you did when you scraped the foam off is that you just did the compensation. You did compensate for the reactive power locally at your, I guess, pint of beer. Oh we'll get goodness. into this later on. But <laughs> okay. just to start off, reactive power is very abstract to understand. I feel like I don't understand it often. And what it is in reality is a mathematical construct. It's just a way to describe a physical phenomenon. It is, in fact, a relationship between the current and the voltage, right? Exactly. So if you look at just the instantaneous values, if we just look at one phase, we don't care about the free phase system. We just look at one phase. So Yeah, let's stick with single phase yeah. for now. Yeah. Voltage is in our AC system. It's basically a sine wave. In the American power system, you have a 60 hertz sine wave of a certain voltage on transmission level, maybe 345 kV, for example. Right. And then... And 60 hertz, just to remind listeners, is actually the frequency of the sine wave. That's how rapidly it's moving. Exactly. Okay. And 60 hertz would be 60 like rotations per second. So okay. if you take these values and you just multiply a voltage divided by current, and in this case, the current is lagging slightly, so it's slightly phase-shifted compared to the voltage. The resulting power... We're still just using the simple equation you used for the example above. Right. P is equal to voltage times current. Actually, you get a resulting plot, which has an average. It's a sine wave, essentially still, but it's been averaged. So you basically, you increase it. So instead of fluctuating between your peak voltages, plus and minus, it's now maybe between zero and, let's say, one for simplicity's sake and the average would be 0.5, and then there's some fluctuation going on. Now, this fluctuation is really current going back and forth in your system, and this is the part that makes up the reactive power. So, if you just go back to the basic equation and just look at it in, in time domain, so look at it from every point in time, uh, power is still voltage times current, it's just that for the sake of analysis purposes and to understand how things are working, we've split them up into two different components, more or less. Now, if you look at it from a physics side, what it really is that is that when you have a bunch of loads that you want to supply with power and you have a, some generation that is supplying this power. So the loads could have some different properties. For example, a motor, which is a very common load in our power system, in order for it to start rotating, in order for us to transfer this power from electricity into the motor and transfer this into torque and rotation of your motor, you need to have a magnetic coupling. So in this motor, there's a bunch of coils that provides this magnetic coupling. Now, what these coils need to do to get the magnetic coupling is they need to be magnetized. And if you go back to physics class, you might remember something called Lenz law, which is basically that coil will delay your currents as they try to pass through. It's like syrup to current, the coils. 
but it establishes the magnetic coupling for your motor and as such it can work. So what really is happening is that you have some active power that is being delivered to drive a motor or drive something else and then the part that is the reactive power is really current going back and forth in your system and it's being stored in various magnetic fields like the one in the motor or in a magnetic field of a generator which is also using similar technology or in electric fields of for example capacitors wow all did right that help out in explaining this or did it confuse more yeah i think that was helpful at this point i'm sort of wondering how anyone even detected that reactive power exists <laughs> <laughs> It's something that sort of exists but doesn't, like it's not actually doing any work. Like I could sort of understand how we discovered electricity, but how we discovered reactive power just still blows my mind. All right, well, let's move on. So if you don't have enough reactive power in the system, what do you do about it? I mean, I understand that capacitors, which are a kind of electrical storage device, do provide reactive power to the grid by changing the flow of current, which would in turn affect the voltage. To return to the analogy of water going through a hose, and I'm getting this from Wikipedia because that's how basic my understanding is. A capacitor is like a rubber membrane sealed inside a pipe. Water cannot go through the membrane, but it can stretch it, which increases the amount of water on one side of the membrane and decreases the amount of water on the other. So are there other ways to supply reactive power to the grid other than capacitors? Well, these water analogies are definitely stretching my hydrologic knowledge. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> but <laughs> there's a bunch of different ways. Just to make clear before we start is that you don't want to transmit reactive power in your system. You want to compensate for it locally, ideally. Ideally, you don't want hmm. your generators to be supplying all your reactive power and then sending this over transmission lines. Partly because, as I said, it's just current going back and forth. You can have that current going back and forth locally instead of going back and forth over your transmission system. Because having that current going back and forth in your transmission system, it still creates losses because the current is still passing through your resistive elements in your system, like the copper, for example. Right. It also takes right. up transmission line capacity, hmm. which is not good either, right? If okay. you want to have some stability or a margin to not overloading your lines, for example, in order to maintain a stable system more easily. Uh, so it's not something you want to have being transmitted over large distances of your system. Um, okay. And therefore, there are a bunch of different methodologies used for compensating locally. We could just start off by looking at the generators because they're still contributing a lot to your reactive power although preferably you like to have the generators fairly close to the load in order to avoid having too much of this being transmitted so there's many similarities between generators and motors but the generator in this case it's also like a big magnet that's rotating and depending on how strong you make this magnet it uses electromagnets in the rotating parts of your generator. And this magnet, in turn, through a law of physics called Faraday's law, if anyone remember that, will induce voltages in your terminals of the generator. So now, depending on how strong you make this magnet, you'll be able to supply more or less reactive power. You'll be able to consume reactive power if needed as well. So that is one way. Okay. But then... 
there is the whole issue of not transferring this too long. The physical relationship between how megawars are traveling in your system is proportional to the difference of voltage. So if you look at two ends of a transmission line, you'd end up with one end with a certain voltage, let's say 345 kV kilovolts, and on the other end at 330 kilovolts. Typically you have a voltage drop across the line. So right. this voltage drop is the main parameters that dictate how much megawars can actually travel across the line. And this puts a problem on the whole transmitting of megawars. So you don't want your voltages to be half of what they were at the other end of a transmission line. Then you have a whole other issue with the loads being disconnected and so on. So you can't really send megawars that far either. And the little parts that you can send, you want to avoid because you don't want to overload lines and increase losses. So in summary for that part, megawars, they don't travel well, is a phrase a colleague of mine typically says. So what can we then do? One thing we could use capacitor banks, like you said, which is a device that essentially, you can think of it as the opposite of these coils that you have in a motor, for example. They're doing the opposite work. And there the energy is stored in an electric field instead. Okay. It basically needs to charge before you get the voltage. The current will be advancing before the voltage. Whereas for a coil, you will have a delay in your current. It's the syrup. It's like running through syrup. The voltage advances before the current in the generator. No, that depends on how you control your... Oh. <laughs> of course, the engineer says that depends, but... <laughs> it, it depends on how you excite or how you steer this magnet. But if you look at just a simple coil, okay. it really has to do with, it will slow down the current, more or less. Let's say it will slow down the inrush of the current. So the voltage will be preceding the current, whereas in a capacitor, it's the other way around. So you're more or less aligning these difference between voltage and current. So you're decreasing this delay in current and thereby you're actually supplying this reactive power locally between the capacitor and the load, let's say a motor, which is the most common reactive power load. So you have them next to each other, then you don't have to have a generator on the other end of your system supplying these megawars to your motor. So that's a good okay. way. Then on top of this, there's a bunch of different other more advanced technologies as well. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions and per-episode purchases are also available. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 
100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. And let me offer a special welcome to the students and educators out there who have joined our new subscribers. A half dozen university classes are now using the show as coursework, with more joining all the time, so welcome. And if you're a student or an educator who would like to inquire about our unbeatable educational discount, just shoot me an email at chris at energytransitionshow.com and we'll work something out for you. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. It's too early to know if it was actually a factor or not, but on the day that I am recording this news segment, October 10th, a news report suggests that power lines may have been responsible for the wildfires that have devastated parts of Sonoma and Napa counties in Northern California, which have so far killed 15 people and destroyed more than 2,000 homes. Multiple reports of sparking wires, power lines falling down, and exploding distribution system transformers were received the night the fire started as 50-mile-per-hour winds tore through the area and many trees and branches fell, blocking roads and possibly taking down power lines. State officials are investigating the causes of the fire and whether PG&E, the utility that runs that grid, failed to keep trees trimmed around its power lines, as it is required to do so under state law. PG&E was fined $8.3 million for failing to maintain a power line that sparked a deadly fire in September 2015, which killed two people and burned 71,000 acres in Amador County. And the utility is now facing more than $90 million in firefighting costs incurred by CAL FIRE last year, with more than 1,000 lawsuits and claims still pending against the utility. Item 2. Fans of episode 53 on electrifying heat may want to check out the new materials that Nate Adams has posted on his website, Nate the House Whisperer, including free downloadable chapters of his new book. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.